The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound... Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey folks, Kate Judson here. I'm a lawyer and the executive director of the Center for Integrity and Forensic Sciences. We're back with another episode of Junk Science, a series we first released in 2020. But these stories are just as relevant as ever. This week is all about arson evidence, the faulty forensic science that was used to convict Cameron Willingham, whose story you're about to hear. Since Cameron Willingham was convicted, we're realizing more and more that this type of evidence cannot be relied on. But... The lessons of this case don't go far enough. We still have cases today where the only evidence presented is an expert opinion. The problem is that the jury doesn't always understand that what they're hearing is opinion, not indisputable fact. And deciding someone's fate based on one person's opinion is a recipe for disaster. It's December 23rd. Last night, you decorated a Christmas tree with your family. You put your two-year-old on your shoulder so she could hang her favorite ornament way up high on the tree. Your twin babies gazed up at you from the living room floor, taking the scene in with giggles and excited kicks of their little legs. Later on, your wife put the kids to bed, and then you both stayed up late finishing the tree and cleaning up. In the morning, your wife leaves the house early for some last-minute shopping for the girls. The babies hear the door slam and start to cry as they typically do. You take them out of their cribs, give them each a bottle, and put them on the soft playmat on the floor so they can keep each other company. You head back to your room, and as you lay down, you hear them cooing from across the hall. You drift off to sleep. You aren't asleep long. You wake up to your two-year-old daughter screaming, Daddy! Daddy! You're groggy, startled, but the terror in her voice snaps you awake like a blaring alarm, and then it hits you. The room is a dense cloud of gray and black you can barely see, 
You smell charcoal, ash, smoke. Oh no, your girls, get the girls out of the house. It's loud. It sounds like an angry windstorm. The entire house is crackling, popping. You make your way to the baby's room and feel around on the floor, groping in the darkness. You think you grab one of the twins, but it's just a baby doll. Your hair is on fire. You stand up and pat it out and frantically get on the ground again. Then there's a loud crash. Something is falling from somewhere in the house. It must be the caving in of part of the roof or a wall, but you can't see anything. It's so hot. You can't breathe. You need to catch your breath before you pass out. You finally make your way outside to get help. You'll come back for them. You see your neighbor on her front lawn and scream for her to call the fire department. She sees a hysterical man covered in soot and she yells back, They're on the way! You try to get back inside, breaking the window of the baby's room with a stick you find in the yard. Flames explode from the opening. Oh God, you can't get in. You're crying out for your children. Someone, anyone, please help. The fire department finally arrives and they have to hold you back. They find your two-year-old in the bedroom on the floor. You didn't realize she had been right there, right there. Your babies are on the floor of their room where you had left them with their bottles. You'd been so close to finding them. They try to do CPR, but it's too late. You're escorted away from the house, and once the fire's under control, investigators and protective gear head inside. There's no sense of urgency anymore. They walk through the remains and disappear into the blackened living room where you had spent your last night together as a family. You are dumbfounded when they arrest you for arson. Murder. This was your family. You would never lay a finger on your children. At your trial, the prosecutors call expert witnesses who tell the jury that the proven science of fire tells the story of how you committed this crime. You poured lighter fluid, which they refer to as an accelerant, under your baby's beds, in the hallway, by the front door. The burn marks seared into the floor indicate where that lighter fluid was puddled on the carpet. They say, there's no way you tried to save your girls. If you had, your feet would have been burned. Drip stains prove that you poured accelerant up and down the hallway. The melted metal door frame, the shattered glass, it all proves the fire was so unnaturally hot that it produced temperatures that could only have been created by chemicals that you intentionally poured all over your home. And your motive? Prosecutors argued this. You love heavy metal music, and that indicates that you have a dark side. You have posters on the walls of your home, one of which depicts a grim reaper. That proves you're obsessed with death. You have a tattoo of a skull and snake on your arm. That indicates that you're a violent person. You have psychiatric problems, perhaps a demonic disposition. You couldn't afford to hire a lawyer, so the court appointed you an attorney. He too suspects that you killed your children. He tells you to plead guilty. If you do, 
they'll give you life in prison instead of the death sentence. You can't do this. This was an accident. There was no crime here. You're not going to confess to killing your three beautiful children. You didn't do anything wrong here. You were convicted and sentenced to death. On death row, the events of that day haunt you. You look at the photos of your children, your wife, to remember the man you were, the life you once had. Time seems to stand still on death row, and the whole experience is nothing short of paralyzing. But the date of your execution eventually closes in. You write a letter to your parents, telling them to never stop fighting to clear your name, even if it's after they put you to death. The last words of your fellow inmates, the ones who were executed before you, one by one, were often apologies. Sometimes they were confessions. But before you're strapped into the gurney and given a lethal injection, you say, I am an innocent person, convicted of a crime I did not commit. I have been persecuted for 12 years for something I did not do. From God's dust I came, and to dust I will return. So the earth shall become my throne. Your parents scatter your ashes over the graves of your children. The story you just heard is based on the wrongful conviction of Cameron Todd Willingham, who was wrongfully convicted and executed in 2004. I'm Josh Dubin, civil rights and criminal defense attorney and innocence ambassador to the Innocence Project in New York. Today on Wrongful Conviction Junk Science, we examine arson evidence. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. 
I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. In 1973, the Nixon administration published a report entitled America Burning. It was all about damage the fires caused in America, both in terms of physical destruction and the billions of dollars spent to repair and rebuild. But unfortunately, much of what was considered fire science in America Burning was merely a set of core assumptions that were never subjected to the rigors of the scientific method. That is, develop a hypothesis, Test it, confirm it, reconfirm it, and repeat until you know you have something sound and verifiable. As a result of this study, fire investigators were given a handbook, a guide to reading fire damage like a psychic reads tea leaves. An investigator, having learned from this handbook, starts his investigation at the exterior of a burnt-down house. He sees a V-shaped burn on what's left of the walls of the living room. He notes, this is the room where the fire started. He walks through the home, keeping an eye out for the telltale signs of arson. First, crazed glass. Windows shattered into irregular pieces with light smoke deposits that indicate a rapid buildup of heat that can only be caused by an accelerant. Second, alligatoring. Large, shiny blisters on burnt wood. Fast, hot fires produced by accelerants create this pattern. Third, puddle formations and burns that look like drip trails. These are caused by the spreading of accelerant like gasoline or paint thinner throughout a house before it is intentionally set on fire. The investigator checks all of these signs off the list. He knows this must be arson. It turns out, the investigator only had a 50% chance of being right, at best, because fire science was built on a foundation of conjecture and best guesses that were never adequately tested and confirmed according to valid scientific principles. What experts and prosecutors had been telling juries for decades about how you can definitively determine that a fire was intentionally set was completely wrong. In fact, Signs that indicated to investigators that they were dealing with arson 
crazed glass, alligator patterns, burn marks indicating drips or puddles of accelerant, were actually the same things left in the wake of an accidental fire. So the evidence that was used to convict Cameron Todd Willingham and so many others was deeply, deeply flawed. It turns out that there was no evidence whatsoever uh, that this had been a fire that was set by Todd Willingham running up and down his home, you know, just before Christmas, spreading accelerant in all the different rooms and down the hallway and killing his three children. It was clear that this was junk science. And unfortunately, by this point in my career, uh, I was familiar enough with the phenomenon of junk science not to be surprised. Joining us today to tell us about arson evidence and how it relates to cases like Cameron Todd Willingham's is Barry Sheck, co-founder of The Innocence Project and famed civil rights and criminal defense attorney. So Barry, first, thanks for being here. And for our listeners, Barry is one of my personal heroes, and I'm just ecstatic um, that we're able to get you to enlighten us about arson evidence. Now, You worked to get Cameron Todd Willingham's case overturned after he was executed. And this might seem like somewhat of a a pointless fight to some people since Mr. Willingham was already put to death in 2004. But you are fighting for Mr. Willingham's final wish, uh, for his name to be cleared and him to be declared an innocent man by a court. I think that it's... um, well accepted that he's an innocent man at this point. But you're also fighting so that the kind of evidence that was used against Mr. Willingham doesn't get used to convict another innocent person. And so to start off, Barry, uh, if some of the clues used in arson investigation are indeed junk science, how did Cameron Todd Willingham get convicted in the first place? What the fire scientists, the arson investigators in Willingham, what they did in that case, they would go to the scene of a fire and they would look at all these visual cues. And if they saw what was called alligatoring, which was, you know, like the scales of an alligator on wood, if they saw what was known as crazed glass, that's like a spider type cracking of the glass. If they saw spalling of concrete, that's like little chips coming off the concrete uh, at the scene of the fire. If they saw scouring uh, on the floor, pour patterns, they immediately assumed that all of these visual cues meant that somebody had spread accelerant around the house and lit it, and that was the cause of the fire. And they literally said to the jury, we look at the fire, the fire talks to us, the fire doesn't lie. That's very powerful to a jury. So what happened, Josh, is that when we at the Innocence Project saw what happened in the Willingham case, we had just been involved in setting up what's known as the Texas Forensic Science Commission, They reviewed all the crime scene evidence in the Willingham case, and they said what was clear, uh, and that is this is junk science. This had been discredited by National Fire Protection 921 10 years ago. The science was completely flawed, unreliable, ridiculous. 
So even after all of that, the state of Texas still refused to free Cameron Todd Willingham. And to show just how flawed this evidence was, there was a man named Ernest Willis who was convicted of a similar crime with similar evidence than was used in the Willingham case. But while Cameron Todd Willingham was put to death in 2004, Willis was declared innocent that very same year. So how is that possible, Barry, that one man, Willingham, is executed based on this junk science while another man, Willis, whose case was very similar, gets to go free? Ernest Willis went to trial. He had a completely incompetent lawyer who was disbarred for all kinds of reasons. Willis was so upset by the, the fire that you know killed uh, family members that he was literally on psychotropic medication uh, in the witness chair, right? He was lucky because his lawyer was so incompetent. And on his death penalty appeal, he got a patent lawyer from Lathrop and Watkins in New York who dove into the case and was able to get the federal courts to vacate that conviction. And when the conviction was remanded on exactly the same evidence, just like the Willingham case, Willis was not only uh, exonerated, there was a prosecutor in Pecos County, Texas, took one look at this and said, oh my God, this was an accidental fire. This was not an arson murder. Uh, And he not only dismissed the case against Ernest Willis, Ernest Willis was compensated as actually innocent by the state of Texas, while within the same time period, Cameron Todd Willingham was executed. It's just really hard to hear this stuff, right? Because right away, this indicates some sort of double standard um, or at least some confusion within the justice system about what arson evidence really means and how much it can be trusted. And to be clear, by 2004, there shouldn't have been any confusion about this type of evidence because in the early 90s, there were two incidents that I'm going to ask you about that really proved that the kind of arson evidence used in the Cameron Todd Willingham case was bogus. The first was the Lime Street case in 1990, which was the case of Gerald Wayne Lewis. Mr. Lewis was accused of killing his pregnant wife, his sister, and his sister's four children by arson. Now, Gerald always maintained his innocence, but it was actually a prosecution expert named John Lentini who was the moving force in proving Gerald's innocence. John Lentini was an arson investigator, and he went, uh, along with a colleague of his, uh, uh, John DeHaan, to investigate an allegation of arson at a home on Lime Street in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, And they examined the crime scene, and they were all ready by their own admission uh, to make a recommendation that it was an intentional arson. But they realized Uh, that right next to the house that burned down was another house that was abandoned, but it was the same construction. So they rebuilt the house right next door to be identical to the uh, Lime Street house that burned down. And then they basically put a a cigarette on a couch. They began the fire uh, in a way that would be completely accidental. The whole place burned down and they saw all the clues, all the visual clues from uh, the crazed glass, alligatoring, burning under furniture, completely compartmentalized fire. They saw all these cues 
and they knew that it was an accidental fire, not a deliberate one. And so that began to change everything. So again, this is very ironic and rare because Lentini's a fire investigator that's working for the prosecution, and he's actually trying to prove that this Lime Street case was in fact arson and that Gerald Wayne Lewis had actually done it. But he realizes that there were some serious issues with his assumptions because this accidental fire actually resembled an arson and it resembled it in very critical ways. And what was most shocking to me about this was that Lentini saw puddle stains and trail marks that looked identical to what he had been taught and so many other investigators had been taught were the telltale signs of someone dripping gasoline or another accelerant throughout a house. But that definitely was not the case here. And they knew that because they set the fire themselves with a cigarette. Exactly. And they'd say, well, that really can't happen unless it's an intentionally set fire. But it turns out with this phenomenon of flashover, which is you get this hot combustible object in a small space, ordinarily a room, right? And then it begins to cause this huge burst of heat and fire in that room, and the whole place becomes engulfed. So that's what creates uh, the intense heat that arson investigators uh, had hypothesized must come from the deliberate use of accelerants. It turns out that it could all happen in a completely accidental fire. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. So Lentini, the investigator, realizes that accidental fires can look just like arson. And he does something that is actually quite remarkable, but it shouldn't be. Because whether you're working for the prosecution or the defense, when the science tells you something, you should not have a bias in its application, right? He doesn't say, oh, this is just some weird coincidence. I'm going to keep working for prosecutors to convict people in arson cases uh, based on this evidence that I now know is clearly faulty. It's wrong. Instead, he's pretty shocked, um, appalled by what he sees, and he feels like he's been misled by this evidence for years, right? And he gets an opportunity to examine um, a bunch more accidental fires to make sure that his findings in the Lime Street case were consistent with other accidental fires. I don't know if people remember, but uh, these homes on the in the hills in Oakland, California, began to burn down. Uh, you know, in what was plainly a series of accidental fires. And after all these homes were burned down, the fire scientists went out and examined each and every one of them, and they realized once again here were plainly accidental fires. But all these visual cues that arson experts had been relying on demonstrated that it was an accident. It was not an intentionally set fire. So take just the crazed glass. That's a simple thing to understand. Uh, you know, you look at the glass, it's sort of spider glass, and that's supposedly uh, an indication of suddenly intense heat that comes from, uh, uh, you know, an accelerant induced fire. In fact, you found crazed glass all over. In Oakland, in the the Lime Street fire, because crazed glass happens when uh, people come to put out the fire and they put cold water on it and the glass cracks. That's how you get crazed glass. So these arson investigators have been testifying for years and years that the reason you see crazed glass and it's no pun intended. It's actually a crazy notion that they're testifying to one thing and it turns out to be the exact opposite. All right. So Cray's glass was caused by the cooling of the glass when they're putting the fire out. What were some other things they were wrong about? They would say, oh, we're looking at mattress springs uh, in a bed or something and they're melted. That can only happen if it's an intentionally set fire. But when they went to the hills of Oakland and looked at these homes, they saw the same thing. And the same thing at the Lime Street fire. I mean, you would think 
that would be the end of people trying to use this kind of junk science, this kind of false evidence. But that isn't the case. What is really upsetting is that you see over the next few decades, nonetheless, lots of people who were convicted because they never did uh, scientific validation in the first place. You actually have to conduct experiments, you have to have hypotheses, and you have to prove that they're true. Instead of just having, you know, uh, really, you know, sort of law enforcement people in lab coats, so to speak, or people that have expertise by way of quote unquote experience going to crime scenes and looking at fire scenes and, and really coming up with their own hypotheses that were never demonstrated to be true by science. That's what's so shocking about this whole area. In other words, if you believe all these different visual cues demonstrate that an accelerant has been used, you should do experiments to prove the point. Now, Barry, this isn't the case where these investigators were out to harm people. This is just how they were trained. I have some sympathy for a whole group of people who had, uh, many of them just high school graduates, who were trained in arson investigation to believe all these different visual cues were a sign of uh, the use of an accelerant and an intentionally set fire. That was never empirically demonstrated, and yet they were doing it. Uh, and that's how they made a living. That's true. And they thought that they had expertise. It's, it's imagine how horrendous it is to believe as a prosecutor or as a uh, so-called, you know, arson investigator that you were wrong and you destroyed people's lives. People don't get up in the morning and say, let's do that. Right. Uh, but it happens and it's very hard to admit to it. All right. So why do you think it is that, you know, generations of experts have all been proven to be wrong? Um, the assumptions they rely on turn out to be incorrect, but there's this unwillingness to change. Once you have invested yourself in this belief and all these very weighty consequences follow, it's very hard to admit that you were wrong even when there's scientific proof that you're wrong. John Lentini and John DeHaan and all these various uh, experts, you know, they started off as regular arson investigators um, that were taught to believe these things, but engaging in real science and doing these experiments, they realized it was all wrong. And they had an enormous amount of trouble persuading the forensic science community to stop. And they're still fighting about it, even to this day. I mean, I think that the Willingham case and all these other exonerations have exposed uh, the community to it. And you literally can see fewer arson convictions since that happened. But Josh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's mystifying. It's so upsetting that it is taking so long to change it. And meanwhile, these convictions based on this false arson science or this, this fire evidence um, just keep on coming. Han Tak Lee, whose daughter, who suffered from mental illness, was found uh, literally burnt to death, incinerated, you know, in a small community in Pennsylvania. 
he gets convicted of killing his daughter intentionally in a fire, which did not happen. Right. The case of Han Tok Lee is just, um, it's really, really troubling. I mean, here's a guy that spent 15 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. And there's a quote that always stuck with me from an opinion written by a judge during Han Tok Lee's appeal. And it was this, quote, much of what was presented to Lee's jury as science is now conceded to be little more than superstition, end quote. I mean, that's so remarkable, isn't it? And, you know, again, the fact that this is still used in the face of quotes like that is just, it's hard to understand. You know, he was granted a new trial and finally exonerated, thankfully, in 2015. Another was uh, uh, Sonia Casey, who was convicted of uh, burning down a house and killing, I guess it was her uncle, uh, Bill Richardson. And it, of course, it turned out that Bill Richardson was actually a heavy smoker and had probably fallen asleep with a burning cigarette. But plainly, she did not uh, start this fire. All the same kind of junk science was used in that case. And that's the great tragedy when you look at the arson cases. So many people uh, like Ernest Willis or Cameron Todd Willingham or Han Tak Lee, you know, they're all convicted of killing with intentionally set fires their loved ones. That to me is, you know, the horrible, horrible irony of these junk science cases. Now, for our listeners, I know Barry, you know, 20 years. Um, and I've seen you get emotional before and passionate about a lot of cases. But I want to go back to the Cameron Todd Willingham case for a moment because it seems to me that this is one that really stuck with you. Um, and it seems to me like one of the two or three cases that has really haunted you in all your innocence work. How can it not haunt you? It should haunt everyone in this country. I mean, this is a case that ought to change the way the people look at capital punishment and forensic science. I think, look, we've made a lot of progress, but we still haven't corrected the biggest injustice of all. And that is uh, uh, the wrongful execution of Cameron Todd Willingham. You see the suffering uh, up to the very, very end and the execution of an innocent man. How could it not haunt you? There's so much importance attached with the state finally admitting that it was wrong and that an innocent person is executed. And that will happen in Texas. It will. Something we keep returning back to in this podcast is the 2009 National Academy of Sciences report, which is a report published by rigorous scientists that is very critical of forensic sciences like arson investigation. In fact, the only one that it's not really critical of is DNA. And you've done a lot to try to push um, the lessons of this report to overturn convictions based on junk science? Truth is, the 2009 uh, National Academy of Science report recommended that there be an independent entity in the federal government uh, that would be dedicated 
to providing a scientific basis and oversight to all these forensic science disciplines, an independent entity. The National Commission on Forensic Science was put into place, which had independent experts from lots of different scientific uh, communities. When uh, Trump was elected, uh, he abolished the National Commission on Forensic Science. Look, it's really inspiring to see that despite all that's gone wrong and all that hasn't worked, that you're still hopeful because something else that's so shocking is that this issue about what kind of evidence should be considered you know, scientific fact, something that can literally determine whether or not someone should live or die based on a crime they may not have committed, it's all still being treated like a political issue. And you have personal experience with these political barriers, yet you're still hopeful despite all of the harm that's been done and continues to be done um, by political officials, by presidents, by judges, who, unlike Lentini, refuse to see the light, so to speak. You know, it becomes this big echo chamber. Junk science is admitted by one court, right? And all the experts can then testify again and again and again, even though it was never properly validated in the first place. And we've had a lot of that, and judges really have to be rigorous on dealing with it. And the problem with judges is that uh, we all went to law school and not medical school. The judges really do have to be better in terms of uh, getting into the nuts and bolts of the science. It's intimidating to them just as it's intimidating to a lot of lawyers. You might be listening to this wondering what you can do to help. I want every listener to consider that even those who are wrongly convicted and are lucky enough to be released from prison, their lives are just never the same. Let's take the example of Sonia Casey. She's the woman Barry Sheck mentioned who was accused of murdering her uncle by arson. We know that Miss Casey was innocent because amongst other evidence, it was later found during the autopsy of her uncle that he most likely died from a heart attack. There was no soot in his lungs, which would have been there if he had in fact died in the fire. Instead, there was fluid in his lungs, so the evidence supported the conclusion that he was dead before the fire had even spread. Nevertheless, Casey was sentenced to 99 years in prison. Sonia Casey was eventually exonerated, but the stain of her wrongful conviction meant that on every job application or when she would try to rent an apartment, she would either have to check a box saying that she had been convicted of a crime, or it would be revealed on a background check. That made it nearly impossible for her to find work or a place to live. So if you own a business, or you're a landlord, or you're just in a position to either approve or reject someone for work or a place to live, and someone checks the box that they have previously been convicted of a crime, please talk to them. Learn about the circumstances of their arrest, the accusations against them, who they are now as a human being. Perhaps you'll find that they were the victim, yes, the victim of a wrongful conviction. Or maybe it's just that they've done something in their past and are no longer that person. The great civil rights attorney Brian Stevenson said it best. Each one of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, 
the incarcerated, and the condemned. I think we can all learn something from that. Next week, we'll analyze hair microscopy, the profoundly flawed junk science that attempts to use human hair to accuse and convict people of crimes they did not commit. Wrongful Conviction Junk Science is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Thanks to our executive producer, Jason Flom, and the team at Signal Company Number 1, executive producer Kevin Wardis, and senior producers Kara Kornhaber and Britt Spangler. Our music was composed by Jay Ralph. You can follow me on Instagram at dubin.josh. Follow the Wrongful Conviction podcast on Facebook and on Instagram at wrongfulconviction and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast! podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at First first Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.